the window of opportunity on some of these green value pools is closing or will close by, call it, the end of this decade. And that's because some of that value is created by real intrinsic supply-demand gaps, and that will go away as people bring forward these investments. From McKinsey's strategy and corporate finance practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Anna Moore, a partner in our London office and one of our guests for today's podcast on creating value in the net zero transition. This is a topic that's been growing quickly in importance over the past few years. And Anna, together with our other guest, Michael Bershon, have co-authored a new article that explores how companies can shift from taking a defensive approach to climate change to playing offense and seizing the new opportunities that the transition to net zero will offer. We'll also include a link to their article in our show notes. Michael is a senior partner in our London office, and he's the global co-leader of our strategy and corporate finance practice. He also serves on the McKinsey Global Institute Council. Anna is a leader in the strategy and corporate finance practice and also co-leads the sustainability strategy practice in Europe. Michael, Anna, welcome to you both. Thanks, Sean. Great to be here. Michael, let's start with you. How would you summarize the main message coming out of your research in your recent article on the value creation opportunity in the net zero transition? Super. Thanks, uh, Sean. And hello, everybody. We've got a thesis that the moment is to move from playing defense, which many companies have got quite good at, to playing offense, to going on offense to find the, the value that really is there with the right net zero strategies. The picture isn't totally one size fits all by by any means. And that therefore a return to strategy and corporate finance fundamentals can be our guide through this era. Just incidentally, as they were the guide through value creation in let's say the dot-com era, when lots of people were talking about the potential of digital and there was real potential, but there was also value destruction and, and the separation was the understanding of the fundamentals. So just by way of context, we would suggest that the momentum towards net zero is undeniable. There will absolutely be fits and starts and detours, but the momentum is undeniable. You know, we saw all the run up to COP26. And then actually, to some extent, my clients were saying sometimes, has it gone quieter, right? It seems like we're talking about this sometimes less. And I think Our reflection, you know, Anna's and mine and our colleagues, is that we shifted from less talking to more doing. So perhaps there were fewer announcements, but there was real uh, movement. Thanks, Michael. The world has gotten even more challenging since that COP26 climate conference last year. The pandemic has continued, and the war in Ukraine most particularly, as well as growing economic headwinds, have offered a lot of challenges. How have those affected the momentum of this transition? Of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the tragic events, they're obviously firstly an absolute humanitarian tragedy. Clients have often been asking us, what does that mean for net zero? I think firstly, look, the situation is genuinely uncertain. Our current perspective would say, look, in the short term, there are a number of things, more use of coal, shortages in some critical minerals, given the proportion that come out of Ukraine or Russia that are important net zero technologies. At the same time, rising gas prices makes renewable power and green hydrogen projects more aggressively in the money than before. And of course, 
what policymakers are recognizing is the trade-off between efficiency and resilience and the value of security of supply, we think long-term may well accelerate the momentum. But in any way, I guess our perspective would be the direction of travel here remains clear. So given this direction, what will it take to reach the goal of net zero emissions and holding temperature increases to less than 1.5 degrees? And what role can businesses play in meeting this challenge? Anna, do you want to take this one? Maybe a few reflections. We're going to need to spend much more in the transition than many were expecting. But the good news is it's also going to create a lot of new value. So I'll talk through a bit on both. We estimate that reaching a one and a half degree pathway would require $9.2 trillion a year in investment in transition technologies. That's redirected investment, new investment, continuing low carbon asset allocations. That's about 7.5% of GDP. It's the single largest asset reallocation in history. What that will create, though, is $9 to $12 trillion in sustainable market value, new green growth value pools. And that's a healthy McKinsey range there because a lot of it depends, as Michael said, on how the transition proceeds, but the direction of travel is clear. Thanks, Anna. And are there any particular areas where you see this investment being focused or where the most value is being created? So in the first instance, there's clearly transition of existing technologies. The usual suspects, I'll pick on transport for a minute, EVs, move towards biofuels, electrification, etc. But what we're also seeing is the emergence of fundamentally new markets. And I'll call out here carbon management and natural capital where we estimate a $100 to $200 billion annual market. This is CCUS, this is carbon accounting, associated industries. And then within each of these bubbles, there are the primary technologies that you expect, but also services in order to facilitate all of the above. So you could think of chemical additives for green cement and clinker substitutes. You could think about architectural services for passive houses within green construction, blockchain, carbon traceability for iron ore, things like this that are going to be spun out as auxiliary services facilitating all of the above. Also important is going to be for many companies a shift towards different end markets. So you could think about still a machinery and tooling business, but one that's now pivoted from serving oil and gas and conventional energy more towards serving renewables players. So that'll also be an important shift that we expect. So this all sounds really promising in terms of new opportunities, but Michael mentioned earlier that this really isn't one size fits all. What What are some of the considerations for corporate strategy here? So there are a couple. The first is that we do expect there will be successful last man standing strategies. And so despite the fact, for instance, that we've had an enormous amount of investment into renewable energy, we still will need some conventional fuels. We anticipate, as McKinsey, that the share of conventional fuels in our energy mix will go from 84% today to about you know, 43% in 2050, but somebody will still have to supply that 43%. We're continuing to see the total market cap um, of oil and gas players rising, even while we see this asset reallocation occurring. Second, this will also be spiky because there will still be winners and losers where despite the fact that we see ESG funds outperforming, there's a lot that gets masked in the headline figures. You could think about construction, for instance, where 
we see an $800 billion to $1.9 trillion green construction market. And yet you still have the collapse of players like Katera, who are providing services for green construction. You still need to be able to compete in this market. Sure. So, so how should companies navigate their way through this potentially challenging terrain? Michael, let's come back to you on this. Yeah, sure. So essentially for, for us, ultimately our guide through this is the fundamentals, right? The fundamentals of value creation. And, and obviously, as we, as we all know, yeah, that is a function of the free cash flow that is coming. Uh, that's a function of heroic and growth. And ultimately, that then gets to how is the transition affecting market attractiveness and competitive position at quite a granular level. And of course, it is affecting it in green markets, right? A bunch of green markets and green assets are becoming more attractive, as we were talking about. Actually, some brown assets and brown markets are also their market attractiveness or the demand supply balance and the competitive position is also changing, right? That may be a low cost brown asset, low down the cost curve. That may be an existing asset when new assets that were planned to come online to meet new demand aren't. And so the supply demand balance tightens, right? And so for, for us, it's not the one size fits all. It's the the value creation guide to this. For us, there's an opportunity to move from what we might call fatalistic to futuristic in terms of the, the transition ambition. Historically, we've had companies, of course, not playing in the transition to net zero. And of course, that raises existential risk, major risk to the free cash flow, to terminal values. And I think we've broadly gone beyond that point in almost every enterprise. But what has often happened is that a number of companies have been so keen to show that they, if you like, remain a going concern through the net zero transition, it's essentially been playing defense, right? This is a big headwind that is coming. And what you, you often see when you look at some of these uh, sustainability strategy announcements is, in a sense, I am investing capital expenditure. I am investing OPEX that will lower my free cash flows but make more certain that I, I do have a going concern through the transition, right? I survive, but I don't necessarily thrive, right? It crystallizes somewhat lower expectations. Sometimes why you see after these announcements, you see the share price move down rather than up. And for us, therefore, the opportunity and indeed the imperative is to make the net zero transition a tailwind, right? How does it drive up free cash flow and therefore valuation? How are you leveraged to those trends uh, in terms of value? So we've written before that companies will need to make $3.5 trillion in aggregate annual investment to help to facilitate the net zero transition. How do you envision this investment being financed? Because if you think about this as $3.5 trillion a year by 2030, about 30% of the overall total investment would likely already be deployed. Does that make this even more urgent from a playing offense perspective? Yeah. So I think the urgency point is, is the critical one, Sean. Um, and part of that is a couple of things that make that especially salient from a strategist perspective. One is that to some extent, the window of opportunity on some of these green value pools is closing or will close by call it the end of this decade. 
And that's because some of that value is created by real intrinsic supply-demand gaps, and that will go away as people bring forward these investments. So indeed, you know, there's a first-mover advantage in a lot of industries, not all but many. I think, secondly, you know, the window of opportunity is closing in order for us to rectify this problem as a society as well, right? It's a carbon budget. And so you're also going to see the portion of that spending that's driven by the government being deployed, you know, much more in middle of this decade than towards the back half in order to address that problem. So indeed, you need to be moving quickly or somebody's going to eat your lunch on this. So how do companies actually make the shift from playing defense or just managing risk to playing offense and actually capturing value creation opportunities? And can you talk about where these broad opportunities in the transition will be mostly concentrated? For us, there's, there's, of course, a bunch of things that are table stakes now about managing the risk. What is happening to my transition risk in my portfolio? Have I thought about TCFD? Have I thought about stranded assets? Are markets closing? What is the resilience of my physical assets? Have I appropriately invested in them? We don't mean to at all trivialize that. That's a hugely important element. But actually, a lot of institutions now across sectors are getting pretty serious about that. For us, playing offense involves pulling four levers. One is portfolio strategy, what's in and out of your portfolio. Second, what are the new businesses that you can build that are leveraged to this mega trend? Third, green premium, the pricing and value creation potential. And fourth, the operational effectiveness and value that can come from that. And of course, if, if it can be wrapped up in a positive and compelling equity story, you know, so much the better. Great. So let's take each of those four in turn. In terms of portfolio strategy, I assume that means shifting the portfolio towards the segments that have the most growth potential in the net zero transition and away from those that might be negatively affected. What kinds of factors should companies consider when they're making those decisions? One is, of course, thinking about, am I the natural owner of carbon-intensive businesses should I keep them in my portfolio? I guess what we would also say is, by the way, it doesn't naturally mean just the standard divestment approach, right? Because as we were talking about, some brown assets or businesses that are more carbon intensive can still produce disproportionate value creation, right? I think it relies on two things. It relies on, do you have the insight and foresight to what's going to happen to the market structure and competitive position and therefore to the value creation of each of the businesses and secondly are you a natural owner of that business or is someone else a more natural owner for what needs to happen for the next stage of evolution of that business and so really embedding that lens in portfolio strategy with nuance rather than just a get rid of everything is the opportunity so that's the first lever Got it. Uh, Anna, can you take us through the next one on building new sustainability businesses? Of course, we're seeing a lot of companies creating value by building new green businesses. Some of the sustainability unicorns attracted multi-billion dollar valuations, in part fueled, of course, by the shift in private capital that we spoke about at the beginning of the conversation, breakthrough energy ventures, others that are putting a lot of money behind this industry. And so you could be tempted to have some skepticism around how durable is this. But a lot of these players are also, to our point a little bit earlier, Sean, in response to your question, getting there faster than many of the incumbents. It's a lot harder for incumbents to replicate. You have the legacy brand. 
and everything that's attached to that, particularly in this space, it can be hard to shift the perception. It's expensive. We spoke about the CapEx that's required earlier. There will be supply chain shortages. And, you know, oftentimes customers can be a little bit skeptical. Is there value? Should they be investing? Yes or no. So how can an incumbent overcome those? In our view, there are three natural advantages that we're seeing some players start to really use that allow incumbents to do this successfully. First, overcoming that investment requirement by making use of the existing asset base. You also have the incumbent's existing capabilities. And finally, the incumbent's existing relationships, both on the supply chain side, where this can be a hugely powerful lever, as well as on the customer side. So large companies have assets, capabilities, and relationships, but they also typically have a lot of people who've long been focused on a particular set of markets or a particular way of doing business. And how have you seen incumbents therefore align their employees and their overall organizations with the shifts to net zero that they want to make? Because you know that can prove a little bit resistant. Does this perhaps need to be led by an explicitly stated new purpose? I'll share a few thoughts, Michael. You should, should jump in as well. First, I think the purpose point that you make, Sean, is a hugely important one but it can be a hugely important way to attract and retain talent, as you all know. I think the second slightly more tactical thing that we're seeing some businesses do is indeed starting with a bit of a nerve center around sustainability that then rolls out and embeds throughout the org. You could think about this a little bit as the transition that safety went through 20 years ago, where you know you previously had one person in the plant who was responsible for it, Now it's part of everybody's job. You have a safety moment at the start of every meeting, right? All of this. And so the transition just in terms of org and capability that we're starting to see companies do is going through that same shift of migrating from sustainability is, you know, a niche ESG, HSE topic to being embedded in how we think about investment allocation, how we think about performance reviews, all of this. And so it's that journey um, that we're seeing a lot of companies start to go on. Michael, other thoughts for your side? No, I mean, I, I think it's a, it, it is the question, Sean. So thank you for asking it. I, I would draw two analogies, right? And I think one is the safety analogy that Anna drew, and the other is perhaps the digital analogy, right? And so the safety analogy, I think some of that is showing colleagues who take great pride, for example, in how they operate their business that sustainable operations and efficient operations, there's often a strong overlap between what it takes. Some of that is the waste that comes. I mean, some, with one of the clients I've been working with, the notion of sort of circularity as, you know, why would you, why would this waste be tolerated, right? It's almost embarrassing when you could avoid it. That was some of the language and some of the values that I think moved colleagues, right? So that's one. And linked to that, by the way, is I wouldn't, underestimate education. And I don't mean that in a sort of patronizing way at all. I mean, that th- there's actually just a lot of technicality in this area. What's scope one versus scope two versus scope three, right? And that is quite important and linked to purpose. That's the sort of safety analogy. The digital one is all the incumbents building digital businesses. Sometimes you have to actually recruit a bunch of new talent and therefore purposes is important. A different environment, is it outside the center? Is it in a different location actually, right? So you, you can build a new culture. Sometimes it's about removing the 
corporate policies that hold back disruptive innovation or at least slow it down, right? It's quite interesting just even internally that many of the colleagues who are partnering with folks like Anna and me to partner with our clients to build these businesses, what they came out of was building digital disruptors. And then you think, well, now I'll build green disruptors. And actually the, the mindset is quite similar. That's really interesting. And you know, in the, in the digital context, do you see many joint ventures and alliances now in the, in the net zero playing offense context? It seems like a good way for incumbents who have a lot of assets and, and natural assets, get the best of what startups and large companies each can bring to the table. I think the point is really well taken. I'll, you know, I would take, for instance, aluminum, where there are a couple of, I think, interesting partnership models that we can draw on. One is research and innovation partnerships between the incumbents and their customers. So you've seen the automotive OEMs partnering in many cases with the more forward-leaning aluminum suppliers in order to create net zero luxury automotives and ultimately, hopefully, non-luxury as well. You've also seen interesting partnership across the industry in aluminum through ASI, which is the industry standards body. I think that's been in many ways helpful to steer the industry towards more and more aggressive decarbonization targets. And so, you know, I'd say you, you're seeing in part because of the supply shortages, more partnerships between customers and suppliers, as well as, of course, producers and the innovation ecosystem. But I think also some interesting collaboration across the industry as folks see this as a shared challenge that requires, if you like, shared technology pathway in many instances. Michael, other thoughts your side? I mean, I'd just add, Sean, I think some of the corporate venture arms are being sort of funneled at this, right? What are the startups? What are the universities that maybe we can get sort of privileged access to at the ground floor? And then perhaps less inspiringly, there's also an element of PR in this, right? You know, I'll validate your progress, incumbent number one, if you validate my progress, sort of incumbent number two. I think that that probably won't last too much longer because investors and regulators and customers will become wiser to it and will sort of not retreat to, we will stabilize on some of the things that Anna was outlining as genuine value creating partnerships. Earlier, Michael, you compared the net zero transition to the digital transition of uh, several years back. This makes one wonder, are you finding that incumbents are actually willing to cannibalize their legacy businesses as they try to build these new green businesses to take advantage of the net zero opportunity? Those were really difficult choices that many incumbents had to make in the digital context as the world moved increasingly into the digital era. Um, are you seeing the same kind of challenges in, uh, in the net zero era? It, 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 it is hard, and that And that's where you get to the innovator's dilemma, right? And, 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 and at the heart of it, if cannibalization is going to come, right, you've got to understand if it's going to come. But if it's going to come, it's either you or it's your competitor. It's firstly, when you look over the history of major transitions, most companies do not navigate most transitions. So, you know, whether, whether you look at the top or right, or you look at you know, a company like IBM should be celebrated for the number of transitions that it's sort of actually successfully managed to navigate. It's really, really hard to do. And therefore, I think there is a real return on leadership for this. And when you actually look at some of this, sometimes it's the founder led 
organizations, right, where there is real clout. Sometimes it's the chief executive with real boldness. The great risk for chief execs and boards is essentially gently managed decline, right, stately decline. And in many ways, that's the easier path. It actually takes, you know, real leadership to, to navigate the transition. We'll talk a couple more lessons from it, but, but I think it is absolutely the, the issue. I guess I would just say, you know, what we've learned is that if there is cannibalization to happen, and it may not happen in all of these, this was our point about the, the sort of value lens, or it may not happen temporarily. It is uh, someone's either going to do it to you or you do it to yourself. And I think where that's harder is where, to Michael's point, it's not necessarily existential. So if you believe the stat that I quoted earlier, our estimate that fossil fuels will decline from 84% of energy demand today to you know, 43% by 2050, now that's half as many oil rigs in West Texas. You're, you're going to need to evolve your business to become an energy player, not just an oil and gas player. And so I think where this becomes a lot harder is where you have clear green growth pools, but not yet existential crisis in, in the industry. How do you make converts of the, believe, of the unbelieving in that context? So if they don't have a burning platform, it makes it a lot harder to, to, to drive that change. Um, so now let's talk about the third lever uh, around green premiums. Is that one way to convince the skeptics to get on board with the transition because you can capture those premiums even if you don't have a burning platform? So there's a lot of hype around green premium we're starting to actually see them materialize. You know, I think examples where there's real value to be had in making a shift towards a greener product are a critical element of that. And I'll pick on plastics for a minute here, where, you know, historically, you have the classic story, virgin materials is worth more than recycled. We see a widening gap where recycled uh, PE is now worth $1,500 a ton more than virgin product. And that's driven by end customer demand. It's over and above the uplift on additional cost from a greener product. So we have 300% uplift on top of additional cost. That's driven by scope three commitments from the CPGs. It's driven by consumers preferring this kind of product. It's a true green premium that's driving a shift within the plastics industry. You know, this is true outside of just consumer facing industries though. I'll draw on steel uh, a, a little bit here. We expect a 50% gap um, by the middle of this decade between green steel demand and green steel supply. Some of that is driven by the automotive OEMs that I was mentioning earlier, construction players, government procurement, where you know the UK, Canada, Germany have committed to 25% green steel consumption by 2025. And so that will drive a true green premium. In our view, you know, 200 to 350 dollars a ton by the middle of this decade, you know, rising by, um, by 2030. To Michael's point earlier around intrinsics, this is driven by a real supply demand gap. You know, what's true in steel, therefore will not necessarily be true in all industries. For example, we actually expect green copper to be oversupplied versus demand because it's easier and cheaper to decarbonize copper and also because it's a smaller portion of you know, emissions uh, therefore, you know, a bit less premium placed on it by manufacturers. I think second point that's important here is, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, the window is going to close. So we've already had 15 green steel projects announced in Europe in the last 24 months or so. 
as those products come, as those uh, plants come online, you're going to see this gap close. And by the end of the 2030s, you know, we will, we expect that you will have oversupply, if anything. And so this is, to our conversation earlier, a time-bound opportunity um, and one that requires investment now in order to meet it. Got it. And I'd imagine our listeners would be quite interested in learning what types of products and services in particular you're seeing or you expect to see generate the highest premiums. Are there, and are there some areas where consumers simply aren't willing to pay more? Maybe a few reflections. On the consumer side, exactly as you say, it's not so simple as consumers say they want green. You know, you can think 10, 15 years ago when you had a lot of green lending products that came out and didn't perform well on the market. Right, so where do we actually see consumer demand manifesting in premia? One, it's when you, know, you do have a shortage in the supply chain and so you're able to pass the cost on a little bit. Two is when you know, it's highly dependent on share of wallet and on geography. Right? So this needs to be important enough, good and small enough share of wallet for consumers that they're actually willing to, to pay for it. So shampoo, I think, is a good example because it's a pretty easy way to, um, uh, to put your money where your mouth is relative to, um, to some other investments that you might make. We would say, however, that we're starting to see more of consumer stated preference actually materializing um, in spend, and that will likely accelerate. When we're talking about demand, though, I think the other element not to forget about is clearly government purchasing. You know, so I called out the commitment from Germany, the UK, Canada, and others towards green steel purchasing. That's also true in cement. A lot of building materials will be significantly affected by that. It's true with respect to energy as well, where you're seeing grid mix shift, right? So the government has an enormous portion of spend that's going to drive this change as well. Um, and it will be, if you like, blunter and easier to interpret than some of the consumer preference shifts. And I think the third element to call out, a bit related to the second, is the role of carbon pricing in a lot of markets. You know, so we expect that a 90 euro per ton CO2 price in Europe would drive about 70% increase in cement cost, at least until new green cement investments come online. So that's going to fundamentally reshape behavior and, and pricing. Right, so I think depending on which market you're in and if there are border adjustment mechanisms as we have in the EU and as Canada and the US are, are exploring, you know, that will also reshape cost curves in a lot of industries. So as companies think about this notion of playing offense on net zero, is this something that you're recommending that they apply across all their regions? Or in other words, is, is this a global opportunity or are you seeing this principally play out in Western economies? So, Sean, I think there is opportunity in all regions, right? It is regional specific in terms of a combination of where is the supply demand balance? Where are the consumer preferences? Are the cars being ex exported? To, to take an example, right? They manufactured one place, they, they sort of coming elsewhere. Because, I mean, I know that globalization has plateaued certainly in goods, right? And there are all sorts of complex nuances that we can talk about. But actually, there's still a lot traded between regions, which therefore means, you know, it may be customer demand in one place, or it may be, you know, manufacturing. We are absolutely seeing in emerging markets, very ambitious sustainability transformations. Just by the way, this was also true in digital, exactly the same story, which is we look to others, we see what they are doing, and we are going to do it bigger, faster, and better. 
Secondly, I think in terms of the disruptions, as you think about things like security of supply, right, and then you think about carbon border adjustments and all of that, you, you then end up with this becomes part of the sort of, if you like, industrial logic of trade. And therefore, then you're ending up innovating in your own backyard as well. So at least those would be some of my uh, instincts. Anna, I don't know if you've got thoughts. Look, 89% of CO2 emissions covered by net zero pledges. So it's going to move at different paces, but this is truly a global phenomenon with serious global commitments, right? And I think also a lot of the supply chains and opportunities that are going to be required in order to unlock some of the opportunities we've been talking about are still global supply chains, to Michael's point. So plastics, for instance, you know, a lot of the feedstock for recycled PET will need to come from India. That's true for electronics recycling as well, right? And so, you know, the, these are fundamentally global supply chains that will be needed to meet particularly the circularity challenge. And, you know, within extractive industries, there will also be a need to make sure that this is a global transition versus, you know, an end point of production transition, right? So, so this, I think, is a, a critical point. There was a fabulous event on emerging market ESG, and a lot of the focus was on exactly this. I think the third point, though, is a bit what we were talking about earlier around CBAM, the carbon border adjustment mechanism in the EU, and similar legislation that's coming into other markets, you know, that rewards suppliers globally for decarbonizing their operations. So Brazilian steel becomes actually more competitive in Europe than a lot of domestic European production uh, because of this and because of their reliance on hydropower. And so I think you're also going to see incentives for decarbonization globally driven by some of those policies. Thank you. Uh, and let's move on to the last value creation lever, the, the notion of green operations. Anna, can you talk a little bit more about what those opportunities offer? Final point, but not to be forgotten, is green operations. And it is trite but true that green is lean. We've been throughout this conversation trying to convince you that it's an opportunity on the top line. It's also often an opportunity on the cost side, too. Many abatement technologies already pay for themselves or more than pay for themselves. You know, we actually estimate more than two-thirds of emissions globally can be addressed with, or mitigated rather, with um, technologies that already exist, and oftentimes those return already. And so it's just to say, as you're scrutinizing those programs, to be keeping an eye for where there's efficiency gain in addition to decarbonization impact. Well, that, that's reassuring to know that, especially that statistic about two-thirds being able to be mitigated with tech that already exists. Um, so these four levers can help companies seize opportunities in the net zero transition, but how should business leaders convey the potential benefits these investments in the transition um, to the markets in a way that their investors will then reward? In, in other words, how do you best craft your value creation story so that your investors come along with you as you make the transition? Anna obviously talked about the value creation and the multiples of some green unicorns. What we also see and the tipping point varies by sector, but companies that are able to um, credibly suggest that they have transitioned enough of their portfolio such that it's got tailwinds rather than headwinds begin to benefit from a re-rating. And for us, I think as we think about uh, equity stories, I guess I'd raise three things often that could be helpful. One is demonstrating the 
continued resilience where that is true of the core, right? So often almost, you know, companies are talking about their transition story. That's true and important, but then investors are saying, but hang on, does that mean your core is declining? Does that mean you're abandoning it? And being clear that it's value over volume and in some level of detail, the core may be more resilient and more value creating than perhaps many investors have thought. And really actually explaining in rigor and detail the resilience of the core and what you can expect and what, by the way, there might be price spikes, for example, that lead to periods of unusually high value creation, right? Or your assets may be unusually well-placed, even though others may be, you know, competitors may be less well-placed. I think that would be one element, the equity story. The second, of course, is as we talked about playing offense, you are leveraged to the upside of the transition. But the third is also there for elements of capital discipline, that what management is doing is hunting for value in a bunch of the green and some of the brown. So those for me would be three things that are worth just sort of emphasizing in the, uh, in the equity story. Thank you. So as business leaders weigh all of these factors and think about these opportunities, are there any other questions that you're recommending they be asking themselves or their teams? Yeah, as we've talked through today, we do think that there is a competitive advantage in climate literacy. In, in really understanding the nuances and being able to go into the detail of where the value might lie. And so how many people have that advantage? Is that capability being built up? Just like, by the way, digital intuition is actually so important in so many organizations, which gets to the sustainability talent strategy, right? Who is being attracted? Are they being, are they being retained? Often uh, a bunch of this is experimenting and doing new things, right? What Anna was talking about, about the partnerships. Some of these partnerships are very creative and complex. And so is this an organization that stifles creativity or actually encourages that climate creativity and innovation and then says, look, we'll analyze it, we'll understand it, and then we'll really back what's working? Do you have a true green premium and where are there disruptive green businesses that you can build within the incumbent core? And then as we were just talking about the equity story that balances both resilience and exposure to the tailwinds. Okay. Our last question, um, we just talked about green premiums. They can often result in higher prices and now they would be on top of already increased inflation. Um, how do we make sure, or if you could both reflect on how companies that are making these investments in the transition can, can ensure that the benefits are both inclusive and driving growth to their bottom line. Fundamentally, what we're doing here is pricing externalities, trying to, to put a price on, on um, carbon as well as other environmental effects. Where that's become tricky, I think, as a, you know, societally, is around who bears the cost for that and how do we think about carbon pricing in particular, ensuring that lower socioeconomic households are able to still pay for the goods and services that they need, even as we add carbon pricing, even as we start to pass through to consumers some of the costs that we were talking about earlier. And so I think a couple of things. One, you know, at a government level, we've seen a lot more support for subsidies for households in this situation. I think you're going to see more of those kinds of programs. Two, I think you've seen companies try to be much more purposeful about which goods 
um, are they trying to attach green premia to and, and, and which are they seeking not to pass on to the consumer, right? And so I think for a lot of staples, for instance, you're seeing companies purposefully not passing on the additional cost. I think maybe the third element goes back to what we were discussing earlier around making sure that the investments that companies are making in decarbonization are also benefiting local communities outside of developed markets, that you are also decarbonizing the plant in Southeast Asia, that you are also investing in well-paying jobs in sustainable industries throughout your global supply chain. And I think you have public scrutiny on that and more of a sense of, of ownership on the side of many corporates, which is all for the good. So I, I very much agree with everything Anna said, Sean. I suppose I would also say there are elements of just, I think the inclusion challenge itself requires deep focus, right? And so I think the, how can you innovate to make things even cheaper to consumers, right? And by the way, where that links to sustainability, for example, Anna's point about green is lean, where recycling might help. So, so one is, I think that the, the, the second is, Candidly, I do think, but talent, investors, and wider society is expecting corporates and us all to deliver sustainable and inclusive and growing, right? And I, and I just think that that is the reality of the management challenge for, you know, this era. Michael, Anna, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you both so much. And thank you everyone for joining us today. You can find Anna and Michael's article, Playing Offense to Create Value in the Net Zero Transition, on McKinsey.com. As always, we'll also share a transcript of this discussion on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at McKinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also explore our library of more than 120 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room. <laughs>